you please pray with me? Lord, we thank you that you've gathered us here this morning in this place. And we ask, Lord, that as we look at your eternal word, that you would graft it deeply in our hearts, that we might be lively members of your church, that mystical body found in you, Jesus Christ, who is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen. Please be seated. I can't believe you still believe in this stuff. Do you believe in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny too? Isn't it a little weird and still, to still believe in magical, invisible beings as described by either the Bible, Quran, or Greek mythologies, given today's body of scientific, scientific knowledge? Jesus is a good teacher, but I don't believe in organized religion. Those are all things that we hear, I think, because those are exact quotes from one of the uh, websites that I read in the comments section this week, uh, challenges to the gospel, challenges to the person of Christ, and challenges to the church. And I think that as we look at the gospel text here, Jesus is without certainty speaking, is rather with certainty, speaking to our world. Open with me, if you would, to today's gospel. Uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, it's printed, of course, in the, the green insert. It's Matthew chapter 16, beginning with verse 13. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? Jesus approaches the district of Caesarea Philippi, which coincidentally is named after both Caesar and Philip, son of Herod, um, naming it after himself, always a, a nice little thing to do when you're with a ruler of that land, and naming it in honor of Caesar, who is, of course, your benefactor. And so Jesus has gone into Gentile land. Now remember, we left him last week in another district in Tyre, also in Gentile land. But what's going on particularly in this gospel passage is that Jesus has gone to a town that's of ancient pagan standing. Ancient pagan standing. So if you had gone to Caesarea Philippi, in Jesus's, in Jesus's time, you would have seen across the horizon of the city, the skyline, if you will, temple after temple to gods and goddesses of the pagan world. But most importantly, this city was the center of the worship of the god Pan. You heard of the god Pan from the, the mythologies? Uh, Pan is uh, a god that went throughout the Middle Eastern world in belief and was a god of nature. And of course, this was very natural for them to pay homage to. They, they were a farming people, 
and they depended on nature for their very sustenance. So Jesus is coming to the outskirts of this city when he asks his disciples the crucial question, the most important question which answer they will give will become the foundation and the bedrock of the church. And the very important question which for you and I is the bedrock and foundation of our faith. Namely, who am I, Jesus says. But first, he wants to see what other people are saying about him. So look with me at verse 14. He asks them in verse 14, or rather the end of verse 13, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, Jesus is just using the word son of man here as a way to say, who do people say that I am? Um, son of man is one of those terms that can mean everything or nothing in scripture, but in this case, it's um, just kind of a generic term. Um, and they said to him, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What's with that? Now, I know, you know, we read the scripture passages and we think, yeah, okay, those are guys from the Old Testament, John the Baptist, I get that, I know who he is. Why are people saying that Jesus is John the Baptist? Why is it that people are saying that Jesus is Elijah? Why is it they're saying that he's Jeremiah, particularly? Well, let's start with Elijah. Flip back in your mind to the Old Testament. Elijah, one of the great prophets. What does Elijah do in his prophecy to the, to the people of God? What does his ministry entail? Well, a lot of it is chastising the people for abandoning God. A lot of it is encouraging God's people in the Old Testament to remain faithful and to come back to the living God, to the most high God. So there's a big connection here. Of course, some people would think that maybe Jesus, who is also calling his people back to the worship of the living God, is Elijah. There's parallels in their ministry. In fact, Elijah even raises the widow's son from the dead. So Elijah actually is able to resurrect somebody. Now remember, Jesus does this too. So it's very reasonable to think that maybe Jesus is Elijah returned. And that's what Herod the Great thinks, by the way. If we go back to Mark 6.15, Herod says, he's Elijah. He's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. And finally, it also makes sense because the prophet Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, says that before the coming of the day of the Lord, Elijah shall return. How about John the Baptist? How about John the Baptist? Why would Jesus be John the Baptist returned at this point? Where is John the Baptist? Yeah, he's been beheaded. <laughs> He's been, he's dead, he's gone. So 
maybe this is John the Baptist come back. Why? Again, because John the Baptist is this prophetic figure drawing people back to God. And so many people think that maybe he's John the Baptist come back, come back. How about Jeremiah? This one's actually harder. Why Jeremiah? Why the prophet Jeremiah? Aside from the fact that he's a prophet, Jeremiah is actually quoted by Matthew earlier in the gospel in chapter 2, verse 18, when Matthew talks about the people of Israel weeping over the holy innocents, Herod's slaughter of the babies trying to kill Jesus. So some think that this is Jeremiah come back. You see, the Jewish leaders are expecting a Messiah, someone that's going to be a prophet and a leader, and these aren't unrealistic expectations, but they're incomplete. They're incomplete. If we look at Isaiah 51, verses 5 and 6, from our Old Testament reading, we read, My righteousness, this is God speaking, through the prophet, my righteousness draws near and my salvation has gone out and my arms will judge the peoples and the coastlands hope for me and, my, and for my arm they wait. For my arm they wait. Jumping down to the bottom of verse six, but my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. So you see, God's people have been told that there will be someone that comes and draws them back to the most holy, living God. But they've also been told that someone will come to save them. Someone will come to save them from all that assaults them. And so you can see how it is that it's going to be more than a prophet that comes. That passage from Isaiah shows God's heart to a suffering and lonely and lost and frustrated, oppressed people. He's not indifferent. His promise is one of righteousness, which can also be translated justice, and one of salvation and judgment. God's Old Testament people are looking for this. Why is this important? Well, it's important to see this because so often we do the same thing that the Jewish people did. We see only Jesus as we'd like to see him. You've heard me preach this before, and I'll preach it again and again and again. Because it's something that secularization of our culture has given us. That we are buffet Christians. We're buffet followers of Jesus. We like this part of him, but we don't like that part. So let's just go with this part. We, we like the compassion, but we don't like the judgment. We like the healing, but we don't like the hard call to take up our cross and follow him. You see, we struggle with the very same thing that this first century Jewish people struggled with. But Jesus is so much more than their or our expectations. Continuing on, Jesus asks his disciples, verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You see, Jesus being the Christ, Christ is not his last name. The Christ means Messiah or anointed one. So Jesus isn't just a prophet. He's someone that's anointed by God, not just to speak for God, but to do more. Who's anointed in the Old Testament? Who are the, who's anointed in the Old Testament regularly with oil? Kings? Who else? Priests. Yes, kings and priests. And so Jesus is this combination of prophet, king, and priest. Christos is the Greek for Christ, meaning anointed one, meaning that Jesus is not just a prophet. So what Peter's saying here is Jesus is also king and priest, a king to vindicate, to save, to take us out of the oppression of death and sin. And priest, of course, to make us presentable before God. To make us presentable before God. The Qumran community, the community that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, actually had this idea. They thought that the Messiah would be a king priest of some sort, but they were the closest prior to Peter. Peter rightly sees Jesus for who he is. Psalm 115, 3 through 8 prophesies it. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And then by contrast, their idols are silver and gold, the works of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. But Jesus is the Son of the one true and living God, greatly in contrast with these temples by which they're all standing, you see, at Caesarea Philippi. Jesus rises above Pan, above the pantheon of gods and goddesses, above the temple to Caesar himself, to be the son of the one living God. So Jesus responds to Peter, blessed are you, Peter, because this has been revealed to you by God. You see, God has revealed this directly to Peter, who's speaking for the apostles, something that he couldn't have put together on his own. And Peter's spoken to the 12 here, just as he will continue to speak for them, though not always. But you see, here we get also the promise that the church will be the one that carries this message to future generations. Verse 18, Jesus speaking to Peter, I tell you, you are Peter on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth, it shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth, it shall be loosed in heaven. But notice, implicit in the statement that the gates of hell will not overcome the church is the idea that the gates of hell will come against the church. That the powers, what's being said there, it's kind of one of these um, uh, first century um, turns of phrase. The gates of hell means those that come out of the portals of hell. 
the demonic, the ministers of Satan, those that come from the other side. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church, is the promise. And today we see many assaults upon the church, don't we? It's constantly challenged today. Syncretism is the fancy word for it, for buffet Christian. It means that we take a little bit of Christianity and we mix it with the inspiration that the world gives. And so the error of belief assaults the church, outside and inside. People outside, there's no wonder they're confused because the people on the inside are often fighting with themselves as to what orthodoxy is. And people in robes and collars sometimes are confused as to who Jesus is and what the church is. Many think that it's backwards to believe in Jesus, to be the only way to God. They think that religion is just about being a good person. You know, I've heard it, if I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. Why can't you just talk about the inspirational things of the Bible? I just need a little pick-me-up, right? But you see, if that's your attitude towards the Word of God and towards Jesus Christ, you're missing the bigger picture. It's not about a little inspirational pick-me-up. You know, you take a little meme from Christianity, you blend it together with another meme from Buddhism, and, you know, you're good to go for another week. That's not what Christianity is. It's an error of belief, an assault on the church. And it's true that we find inspiration in our faith, of course, yet it's so much more because God doesn't want you to be a good person instead of an evil person. He wants you to be an alive person instead of a dead person. And there's a huge difference. Now, of course, the alive person will be a good person that reflects Christ, but the person that's striving to be good rather than to be alive is missing the point. The point is to be alive in Christ and let that drive us, to be in communion with the Son of the living God. And it's on that faith that Jesus is the Christ, that statement, the Son of the living God, that the church has been built and will be built for centuries more. St. Leo, who's the Bishop of Rome, from 440 to 461, comments on this passage and says, upon this firmness, that is, that statement of Christ's identity, Jesus says, I shall raise my temple, and it shall rise upon the steadfastness of this faith. The apostles here have no idea what lies in store for them. We just celebrated St. Bartholomew's Day on uh, Thursday of this week, and St. Bartholomew was called to go to India and plant the church in India, and then returned back to Armenia. And for his efforts, he was filleted alive for bringing the gospel to those peoples. That's the kind of reality that the apostles would face. And that's the kind of reality of the promise that they needed to persist. It's the promise that we need as well. A second problem, a second assault on the church that I see over and over again is that people think they can be Christians and not go to church. That would have never been heard of for the first 1,700 years of the church. You can't be a Christian and not go to church. 
Now, you can be someone that values the values of Jesus Christ. You can be someone who is sympathetic to Jesus Christ. But you cannot be a church follower and not be part of the ecclesia, be part of the church. You see, Jesus in this passage makes it clear that the church is the way he reaches people in our time. I love Jesus, but I don't go to church, we hear. Instead of, um, when asked, this is a quote from Barna, when asked what helped grow their faith, church doesn't even make the top 10 factors for millennials. Isn't that sad? When asked what grows their faith, church doesn't even make the top 10 for millennials. And yet, it's the way that Jesus feeds us. It's the way that we're in relationship with him through the holy sacraments and through community with each other. Quite simply, you can't be a Christian and not belong to the church. And you know what? The church is screwed up. There's no perfect church. I'll be the first to tell you this. The attacks on the church that come from within as well as without certainly sometimes make us question, why am I here? Lord, did you really call me to be part of this body? And yet, what do we say to those folks? We say, yes, the church has made mistakes because it's full of human beings. And yet Jesus' statement that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it still stand. And it's much better to be part of an imperfect church than to not be part of the church at all. It's not without reason that our colleague today prays for the church, that we pray that God would govern us, that God would correct us and strengthen us. Because you, friends, you and I are Jesus in the world today. Ephesians 2.20 says it this way, Paul writing to the Ephesian church, so then you are no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So what does this mean to us today? Well, I've said this before too, and I'll say it again, that you as people that confess Christ, Jesus as the Christ and the Son of the living God, are ministers of the church. Do you know, you and I stand in the line of the apostles. You and I stand in the line of the apostles. Some are bishops who've had laid hands laid upon them by bishops going all the way back to one of the 12. Some are called to be priests who have had hands laid upon them by bishops going all the way back to the 12. Some are called to be deacons that proclaim the word of God and prepare for baptism and care for the sick and the poor who's also been ordained going all the way back to one of the 12. But you, as the laity, are the engine of the church. You too, in your confirmation, stand in the line of the apostles. Why do we have it as Anglicans and our Roman Catholic brothers and our Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters? Why do we have it that the bishop comes and lays hands on the common layman? 
Why? Because that's your ordination. That's your ordination to be the hands and feet of Christ, to stand upon the shoulders of the apostles, to wage war against the world, to ensure that people hear who Jesus truly is so that they can believe in him, to proclaim the word, to live generously. You see, what we do here has eternal consequences. When you write that pledge check, when you take the time to come and serve your brother in Christ, or go out into the world and do acts of mercy, those things are eternal events because they deal with eternal creatures. All of this will fade away. But the church, the people of God, will endure forever. And it's to that that you've been called. It's to that that I've been called. Christ, Jesus Christ, is the Son of God, the Son of the living God, our Savior and Lord. Let us stand firmly upon that foundation, not be taken up with the concerns of our world and confused with er erroneous doctrine, and move forward being clear as to who Jesus is and who we are as his saved ones. Amen.